You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers podcast. Occasionally, I like to share with you other podcasts that you might find of interest. This month, I want to talk to you about Twilight Histories. This is a fascinating podcast that takes you on these alternative history and alternative world trips. It's sort of a role-playing game where you are dropped into the story as a character. It's some really original and engaging stuff. So take a listen to this trailer, and if it strikes you, give it a try. That's Twilight Histories. You love role-playing, science fiction, and history. What if there was a podcast that brought all these things you love together in a deep, dramatic experience you'll never forget? Enter the Twilight Histories, a campaign-style storytelling podcast that casts you as the hero. With the Twilight Histories, you will travel to exotic worlds spread across the multiverse. Some are familiar, others are totally exotic. You'll visit Egypt locked in an ice age. You'll follow Napoleon into India. You'll explore Venus terraformed by dinosaurs. Choose your adventure and experience a world out of time. The Twilight Histories was awarded Apple's Best of 2019. Listen to the Twilight Histories wherever you find your podcasts. Now, step on the platform and let's get you on your way. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today, I'm going to share with you the story of James Beckworth, a man described as an explorer, trader, trapper, prospector, Indian chief, shopkeeper, card player, horse rustler, soldier, and one of the greatest yarn spinners of the American West. And that's just a part of his resume. For me, Beckworth's story is a fascinating one. He is a representation of the classic American mountain man, this breed of rugged, resourceful individuals that were so important to the opening of the young American Republic in the first half of the 19th century. He is a contemporary of more famous American explorers and adventurers, such as Kit Carson and Jim Bridger. But even amongst mountain men, Beckworth is unique. One reason is that he was born a slave. Another is that he is considered one of the greatest teller of tall tales of the era, a legend amongst his peers, who were no slouches at spinning their own yarns. This makes the telling of Beckworth's story a little problematic, as we struggle to really know what's real and what is just a part of the Beckworth myth. Oftentimes it's a little of both, but we will talk about that as we go. 
Regarding Beckworth, while an explorer, his story is not typical for this podcast. He doesn't set off from point A and reach point B over the course of a set period of time. I mean, he will make discoveries, but in a lot of ways, he represents all of these mountain men who came in the wake of the Lewis and Clark expedition. These men pushed into the great western mountains, often by themselves, hunting and trapping, but at the same time, opening up routes into and through the Rocky Mountains. Many of these men are just remembered as names, if even that. But by studying Beckworth, we are taking a look at all of these guys. Now, one very important note about this story. Much of the information we have about Beckworth is drawn from a book written in 1856 by Thomas D. Bonner. Bonner wrote the book, transcribing what Beckworth told him, and here we have some major issues. First, Beckworth is, at best, not a trusty source. To say he liked to exaggerate is about as polite as it gets. And we can't forget, Beckworth was telling his story decades after the fact, so there are bound to be inaccuracies. Second, Bonner is even more dubious of a character than Beckworth. Bonner wanted to sell books, so he had no problems expanding on or fabricating the already fanciful stories that Beckworth told him. All of this means that we need to look at Beckworth's autobiography with a heavy dose of skepticism. Still, the book is an important account of an era that has so little documentation, so it's a great resource. I do have one note for you before we start, and that is you can check out our website, explorerspodcast.com, if you want to know a bit more about Beckworth. There are some photos of him on the site, as well as links to some books and online resources. With all of that said, let's get going. James Pearson Beckworth was born on April 26, 1798, or 1800. Like a lot about Beckworth, the year is debatable. Beckworth said that he was born in 1798, but most records indicate that it was more likely 1800. Not a huge deal. Beckworth was born in Frederick County, Virginia. His father was Jennings Beckwith, note the name is slightly different, a prominent landowner and a descendant of English nobility. Beckworth's mother was a slave, and likely was of mixed race herself. We don't know much about her, not even her name. It is said that she had 13 children, and Beckworth was her third. Reports indicate that Beckworth's mother and father had a long-standing relationship, and Jennings Beckwith, from the start, acknowledged that James was his son. Despite that, Jennings Beckwith held his son and his mother as slaves. Little is known about Beckworth's early life. His father would move to Missouri in 1809, bringing with him 22 slaves. Some reports say that Beckworth's mother and all the siblings came as well, but other sources say some remained in Virginia. Jennings Beckwith would settle on 1,280 acres of land between the Mississippi and Missouri rivers, a dozen miles from present-day St. Charles, not far from St. Louis. The region was more French and Spanish than American. This was wild country, right on the edge of the western frontier. St. Louis was, at this time, one of the great frontier cities of the west, the hub of the region. Goods came down the Mississippi, often from one of the many eastern tributaries, such as the Ohio River. From the western tributaries, such as the great Missouri River, came the spoils of the west, the greatest prize being beaver pelts. Beaver fur was highly valued in Europe and Asia. In Europe, the fur was used to make felted beaver hats. These hats, which came in many designs and shapes, were soft yet durable, and they were the height of fashion for around 300 years. Trappers had depleted the beaver population on much of the eastern side of the continent and were moving west of the Mississippi. In addition to all the commerce generated by the river, there was also overland trade with Spanish territories to the southwest, with Santa Fe being the great trading center of the region. The early French and then Spanish traders worked with the Plain Indians to acquire pelts, heading up the Missouri and Arkansas and other rivers to trade. In exchange for the valuable fur, the traders brought metal goods such as pots and pans, 
plus woven cloth, blankets, beads, and alcohol, just to name a few items. Trading guns and ammunition was banned, but it wouldn't take long for such exchanges to take place, especially as rival trading companies pitted various tribes against one another. No matter, most of the Plains natives came to rely on these traders for goods. However, by the time of Beckworth's arrival in St. Louis, things were changing. Americans were arriving in greater and greater numbers, and it didn't take long for them to encroach on the lands of the native peoples. And it wasn't just the white settlers coming west and taking lands that caused problems. It was other tribes being pushed from the eastern side of the Mississippi to the western side. It all means this world would be a volatile and oftentimes dangerous place. James Beckworth, who I will call Jim, as that is what he was known by his friends and companions for most of his life, would find out just how brutal the world this could be when, as a boy, he was sent by his father to a nearby mill to deliver a sack of corn. On his journey, young Jim would come across the mutilated bodies of some children. In his book, he says there were eight of them, but other sources say there were two. The culprits, some marauding Indians, were hunted down and killed, their scalps brought back and put on display. The fighting would get especially bad during the War of 1812, as many of the native peoples allied with the English, who they saw as a lesser evil than the aggressive young American nation, whose appetite for territory seemed to have no end. The war would get within a few miles of Beckwith lands when 155 war canoes descended on the region. The local militia would fight off the attack, but many homes and cabins were burned and people killed in the conflict. Now, as for Jim Beckworth, he was not treated as a slave by his father. He would be sent to school, going for several years. There are debates about Beckworth's ability to read and write, but it wouldn't have been surprising if he was at least semi-literate. And despite the schooling, Beckworth grew up hunting and fishing and wandering the wilds with his father. Both loved the freedom of the outdoors. When Jim's education was concluded, his father would set him up as an apprentice blacksmith in St. Louis. It was a good, steady career, but as Jim Beckworth matured into a man, he grew restless and bored. Also, he'd become a proud young man who didn't take slights very lightly. We can't forget that Beckworth was part black. This was going to close some doors to him and open him to abuse and contempt. But Beckworth would never be the kind of guy who would put up with this kind of behavior. He hated being treated as less than others, and he was not afraid to stand up for himself. So his distaste for the big city was, perhaps, influenced by the racism he encountered, something not much of an issue in the wild. As a note, many people who met him did not realize he was black. He is often mistaken as being part Indian or Mexican. At the age of 19, Beckworth would get involved in an argument with his boss, likely over a woman, and the two would get into a fight. Beckworth would knock out his boss and take off, heading to his father's land. The next couple of years are a bit of a mystery, but we eventually find Beckworth striking out on his own. His father would free Jim, as he was technically still a slave, and give him some money as well as a horse and saddle to travel. Now, as we get ready to explore the world with Jim Beckworth, I want to reiterate that much of what we know about Beckworth and his contemporaries is subject to second-guessing. We just have to tell the story the best we can. Thus, I will hand out a lot of caveats in this episode. And the first thing I want to talk about is Beckworth's name. He was given his father's name, Beckwith, at birth, but at some point he changed it to Beckworth. When and why, we don't know for sure. It doesn't appear that he ever had a falling out with his father. Perhaps he wanted to just distinguish himself from his family. Or maybe changing a name was a way to escape a legal situation or a debt. We just don't know. So the next time we catch up with Beckworth is in 1822, and he was heading up the Mississippi River to the area around modern-day Galena, Illinois. Lead had been found in great quantities in the area, and the government had sent representatives to negotiate with the native peoples so that the ore could be safely mined. 
What exactly Beckworth did there is not known, but he would spend 18 months in the area. And in this time, he would get to know the local native people. And it, in a lot of ways, opened his eyes. I mean, Beckworth had had dealings with native Indians all of his life, but now he really immersed himself in their world. He liked the Indians, and they liked him. The young man had a natural charm and charisma, and he found himself a trusted and valued part of their world. An example of this was when he spoke about hunting with the Indians. He would say, quote, I soon grew indebted to them for showing me their choicest hunting grounds, end quote. For Beckworth, his dark skin didn't really matter to the natives, and that would have been a revelation. Beckworth would next head to New Orleans, and after a bout of yellow fever, return to St. Louis. By the way, you can see a pattern to the life of Jim Beckworth. Travel to someplace new, do some cool stuff, make some money, then move on. It is a pattern that he'll stick to for most of his life. Anyhow, at this time, Beckworth decided that he wanted to head west, to the Rocky Mountains. And for this, he would turn to the Rocky Mountain Fur Company, signing up with them in 1924. The Rocky Mountain Fur Company had been formed just two years earlier by William Ashley and Andrew Henry. Ashley, a general in the Missouri militia, put out an ad in a St. Louis paper asking for a hundred enterprising young men who were looking for adventure. The plan was to travel west and trap and trade. These men were expected to be out in the wild for one or two or even three years. The Rocky Mountain Fur Company was an upstart rival, one of many, to established trading companies such as the Hudson's Bay Company and John Jacob Astor's American Fur Company. General Ashley and his newly minted business wanted to trap the region of the Green River Valley in modern-day Wyoming and Colorado. The competition for beaver pelts was fierce, and trappers were being forced to go deeper into the mountains each year to find their prizes. What emerged out of Ashley's company and other fur trading organizations were the legendary mountain men. These were rugged, resourceful men, and their ranks included Western icons such as Kit Carson, Jedediah Smith, and Jim Bridger. Now, typically most trappers would work out of a frontier post, often operated by the fur company, and have the Indians do the actual trapping. In addition to beaver pelts, they brought back the furs of foxes, bears, otters, minks, lynx, wolves, elk, deer, buffalo, and other animals. But as always, it was the beaver pelts that everyone desired most. A man might make two to $400 a year as a trapper. This system was not cheap as you had to maintain a series of outposts and forts. And thus, the Rocky Mountain Fur Company came up with a pioneering alternative. The men they hired would be called free trappers. They were not bound to a fort or outpost or wherever, and they wouldn't rely on the Indian natives to do the trapping. Instead, the free trappers would go into the wilderness and do the trapping themselves. They would be given equipment and supplies to do their job, but no salary. Instead, they would split the sale of the furs they collected 50-50. By not having to build outposts and forts, the fur trading company could operate with less overhead. And by not having their men tied to a specific location, it allowed the trappers to explore and go deeper into the mountains. To collect all of these furs, Ashley's company would, each year, have a huge gathering of trappers and traders called the Rendezvous. The mountain men would come to the great gathering instead of having to take their pelts to a fort or an outpost. More on the Rendezvous later in our story. So, Beckworth would sign up with the Rocky Mountain Fur Company and head west in the fall of 1824. Now, I'm going to talk about Beckworth's adventures covering the next few years, but I'm going to sort of bundle them into one narrative, because, frankly, it's confusing as to what really happened each year. Beckworth tells the story one way, other people say something else. It is, to be honest, immensely frustrating. In fact, as I wrote the script for this episode, I really struggled to put together a narrative that I felt worked. I stopped and started multiple times with this story, and it took far longer than normal. 
One of the big problems is that actual physical documentation about Beckworth and this era is lacking. Most of the stuff that we have was written decades later, based on the memories of those involved. The problem with that is that memories fade, and people omit things that might embarrass them, that sort of thing. So with this story, I want to stress that the order of events and dates aren't always as important as the understanding of how Beckworth and his contemporaries did their job and filled in many of the blank spots on the map of the American West, in particular, the Rocky Mountains. So in 1824, Jim Beckworth would head west toward the Rockies and the life of a trapper and mountain man. And in his book, he provides a rich and detailed description of this adventurous life. The expeditions of the Rocky Mountain Fur Company would typically consist of 25 to 40 men, a colorful blend of characters from all walks of life. There were whites, Native Indians, Mexicans, French voyagers, and men of mixed race. As we said, these were tough and rugged men, most of them handy with a rifle and not afraid to fight. Many were the type who simply didn't fit well into a more structured, confining society. They needed to have freedom and open horizons. Some were there because they needed the money, or they were on the run from the law, debt collectors, or other troubles. As a note, Beckworth, while as rough and rugged as anyone, is noted throughout his life for his refined speech, especially when compared to his contemporaries. Anyhow, these trappers would typically head up the Missouri River and then go west along the Platte River across what is modern-day Nebraska. The Platte Forks in western Nebraska, the northern branch heading into Wyoming, the southern branch going into Colorado and through Denver. The Rocky Mountain Fur Company would follow the northern branch and operate out of the Green River Basin in southwest Wyoming, about 100 miles or so, or 160 kilometers, from the Great Salt Lake. The men of the company would travel light. They had some basic foods such as flour, coffee, and sugar, as well as tobacco, but they would rely on their rifles for most of their meals. They hunted deer, elk, buffalo, bears, and turkeys. When possible, they would trade with the Indians, acquiring corn and pumpkins and beans. Now, even in his first journey, a few things about Jim Beckworth would quickly emerge. First, he was a top-notch writer and an outstanding shot. I want to read you a sentence from his autobiography regarding hunting. Quote, I came upon an elk, and my rifle soon sent a leaden messenger after him. End quote. That is awesome. He could have just said, I shot the elk, yet this is almost poetic. And from what we know about Beckworth, I can imagine that he actually said those words, and they were not a fabrication of an editor. The second thing that comes out about Beckworth is that he is an intelligent, resourceful, tough, and extremely capable man. Not to mention confident, or perhaps cocky is a better term. This all means that the Wild West and the rugged mountains were where Jim Beckworth was meant to be. Now, regarding Beckworth's years as a mountain man, we can't take his adventures, which he talks about in his book, too seriously, as those things, the gunfights and dramatic deeds, were often embellished or simply made up. However, the other parts of the book really offered gems of insight into life on the American plains and in the Rocky Mountains at this time. An example of this is him breaking down the various tribes within the Pawnee Nation. There was the Grand Pawnee, the Republican Pawnee, the Wolf Pawnee, the Tattooed Pawnee, and the Black Pawnee. He quickly understood the different political and social differences between the tribes. This ability to understand the nuances of the world is a talent that will be very helpful throughout his life. Another great story is when the Pawnee took Beckworth with them to hunt the migrating buffalo. He goes into detail on this process. The tribe, which he says numbered 1 to 2,000, would essentially create a huge miles-wide circle around the buffalo herds. They would then slowly move inward, hemming in the great animals. Beckworth claims that the Pawnee killed 1,400 buffalo over the course of four days. An exaggeration? Probably. But that doesn't make the other parts of the story fascinating and insightful. 
These details that Beckworth provides are some of the most praised aspects of his autobiography. So, from the plains, Beckworth and the trappers would head into the Rocky Mountains, where the beaver were still not over-trapped. There, they would divide into smaller groups of five or six, and from there, they might break into pairs or even head out alone. And it was here that Beckworth learned how not just to trap the beaver, but to survive in the mountains. The beaver population was abundant in the Green River region and up in the mountains, and as noted, highly valued. The prime trapping season was early autumn until winter's ice and snow made movement impossible, and then early spring. These two times were when the animal's fur was at its thickest. Beckworth said that at one location, they trapped a hundred of the animals in just a few days. He and his companions would then prepare the pelts. Sixty beaver skins, when dried, weighed about a hundred pounds. Beckworth said that he and his group collected seven to eight hundred pounds of pelts. These would be cached and then retrieved and taken to the following summer's rendezvous. In 1825, General Ashley, the head guy of the fur company, would return to St. Louis with $50,000 worth of furs. It was even more the next year. Now, as noted, every year the trappers would partake in what was called the rendezvous, the first one being held in 1825. This was a prearranged meeting place, usually in the area of the Green River Basin, in the summer. The rendezvous would happen for 15 years, from 1825 to 1840, before declining beaver populations, increased competition, and fashion changes would end the gathering. Beckworth described one rendezvous where 800 trappers, traders, and native Indians converged for a great outdoors market that lasted weeks. The trappers and native peoples would bring their pelts. The fur company would bring trade goods and provisions, including trapping gear, weapons, and ammunition. Alcohol was also a big attraction. The annual rendezvous would become a major event. For the trappers, this was their first chance to blow off steam and celebrate in a year. They would drink and gamble and sing and dance, and then drink some more. Also, it was a time to swap stories. And when I say swap stories, I'm not talking about a bunch of guys sitting around a fire and giving a simple rundown of the events of the past year. No, this was a much, much bigger deal, with storytelling raised to an art form. The mountain men of the era quickly developed reputations as some of the greatest storytellers in the West. Generally, they would take nuggets of truth and create grand, elaborate, and often outrageous tales. The bigger, the better. And Jim Beckworth could rival any man in storytelling. He was a natural speaker, easygoing and charismatic. People would come on in this all of his life. Plus, there was his appearance. Beckworth was about six foot tall, muscular and rangy, and with a dark complexion. He had thick black hair that reached down to his waist. Over time, he would add adornments such as gold jewelry, all part of his love of putting on a good show. In these early years in the mountains, Beckworth would learn to tell his stories from the best. Jim Bridger, Beckworth's friend, was a legendary storyteller. Beckworth could match, if not better him. This would help fuel Beckworth's reputation as not just a storyteller, but as a liar. A term frequently used was gaudy liar. There are many other not-so-polite terms as well. However, I want to note that to a mountain man, this was a compliment. To be dull was the gravest sin. Tales were supposed to be big, even preposterous. They were full of dramatic fights and narrow escapes. And to take someone else's experiences and make it your own, that was perfectly fine. To be called a gaudy liar was a sign of respect and admiration and a compliment to the storyteller's creativity. In the end, Beckworth was part of a unique oral tradition. However, his style would lead many to not trust him, especially as they poked holes into his tales later on in his life. And it is the reason we have to be careful about what he says. Trying to discern the truth is not always easy, and when Beckworth makes obviously outrageous statements or claims, it makes a reader not want to trust anything he says. 
However, I do want to point out that there are times when many of the supposedly outrageous tales told by Beckworth and other mountain men turned out to be true. John Coulter, who had been on the Lewis and Clark expedition and was one of the first mountain men, was ridiculed when he told of finding a land with geysers, bubbling mud pots, and pools of steaming water. It was mockingly called Coulter's Hell. Yet it would prove to be real in an area near present-day Cody, Wyoming. Jim Bridger was mocked after he reported finding a huge body of water filled with salt. Well, hello, Great Salt Lake. My point is that many of the tall tales told by Beckworth and his peers were exactly that, tall tales. Stories crafted to entertain around a fire on a cold night. They weren't necessarily meant to be taken as history. However, as noted, oftentimes there were nuggets of truth in these tales, so we don't want to totally dismiss things. So Beckworth would spend several years working for the Rocky Mountain Fur Company, becoming an accomplished mountain man in the process. In the fall of 1825, he went beyond the Green River, past Jackson Hole, and over the Tetons to the Snake River. A year later, he would trap with Jim Bridger, one of the most famous mountain men. The two would become lifelong friends. The big thing about being a trapper was the dangers involved. We have talked about some of the challenges, but Beckworth lists many more in his autobiography. Starvation was always a huge issue. This meant a man had to know how to use his rifle, and they had to know how to forage for nuts and roots and berries. There was also the cold. Once winter struck, these mountain men would have to build a small shelter, called a shanty, and ride out the snows. During the winter was when they would prepare all their pelts for transport. Also, many of these men would strike a deal with the native Indians for a wife for the winter. I use the term wife in air quotes there. This was a transaction of buying a young woman for the winter to act as a servant and sexual partner. Such a wife could cost several horses, a rifle and ammunition, as well as whiskey or other goods. Another major issue for these men was sickness and injury. When in the mountains, alone, such problems could mean a man's death. Another health-related problem was that it was not uncommon for these trappers to develop arthritis and rheumatism at a young age. To trap beavers, you had to set and retrieve the traps in the water. This meant these men were constantly working in freezing mountain streams and lakes. It was brutal on the body. And speaking of the mountain waters, these mountain men often traveled by canoe, or they had to cross rivers and streams on foot. Getting caught in the rapids of a river was always a danger. In fact, General William Ashley, one of the founders of the Rocky Mountain Fur Company, was saved by Beckworth when his canoe overturned in the water of a mountain stream. Another danger would be from the animals. Beckworth witnessed more than one man attacked and killed by a grizzly. And another time, one of his companions was charged by a wounded buffalo. But outside all of these dangerous conditions, the biggest wild card in the life of a mountain man was the native Indians. More often than not, the Indians were a source of survival in the West. They were open to mutually beneficial trade, and they usually didn't have anything against a few men wandering around trapping some animals, especially if everyone treated each other fairly and with respect when they did have encounters. But there were other forces at play than just the native Indians and the trappers. Remember, there were rival fur trading companies vying for the same product. Example, the Hudson's Bay Company was pressing south and west from Canada. They supplied weapons to tribes such as the Blackfoot and Sioux to thwart American trappers and traders. And there were international forces involved as well. The British and Americans were competing for control of the Pacific Northwest. They had no problem providing weapons and supplies to the tribes that would support their aims. And then there were rivalries between the native tribes. To become friendly with one tribe might make you an enemy of another. And thus, every year, some of these mountain men would never come back from their expeditions. Some just disappeared, gone from history, how and when they died, unknown. Others died in a more dramatic fashion, such as a shootout with some Indians. Beckworth would have his share of close calls. 
He was hit by an arrow, but not seriously, when some Indians tried to steal some of his team's horses. Another time, some Shoshone Indians made off with 80 horses. Beckworth and some of the other mountain men tracked them down and killed six of them in a fight. Now, in all of this, men like Beckworth are, of course, trapping beavers. However, they were doing something else, something far more important. They were mapping the Rocky Mountains. They were discovering new passes through the mountains, mapping rivers, lakes, and streams, locating strategic spots to build forts and settlements, and identifying signs of coal, silver, lead, and gold. To be honest, we only know a fraction of the places these mountain men explored and visited, and that's because the men never wrote it down, or it was reported back as some scrawls on a piece of paper, or just reported verbally. These men weren't on government-backed expeditions, trying to find specific routes and places, with someone taking notes and logging all their steps. They were just trappers, although many would go on to help expeditions of discovery in the future. But in the end, they were all, in their own way, explorers who helped map the American West. And with that, I want to transition Beckworth's story to a new chapter, his life amongst the Crow Indians, who he will live with for nearly a decade. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, explorers. It's Matt. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? Outside In is the award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio that allows you to do just that. From explorations of nature to important conversations about climate change and sustainability, award-winning reporter and host Nate Hedgie covers all kinds of topics related to our world. They cover fascinating topics, like the wild horses of the American West and why they are so divisive, little-known tales from the world of competitive dog sled racing, and the disappearing dunes of coastal Oregon that inspired the desert planet of Arrakis. Through in-depth reporting and narrative storytelling, Outside In meets listeners wherever they are to take them on the journey. It's not just for thru-hikers and conservationists. It is a podcast for anyone who is curious about the natural world. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. In 1828, Beckworth claimed he was captured by the Crow Indians at the borders of the territory of the Crow, Cheyenne, and Blackfoot. We're talking roughly around the area of Wyoming. Now, it's very unlikely that Beckworth was actually captured by the Crow. The more realistic scenario is that he negotiated his inclusion into the tribe. This was not an uncommon thing. The reason for this is pretty simple. A trapper working from within a native tribe was safer than one operating outside of the tribe. So instead of traipsing off into the mountains alone, he had a safe place to operate from, steady food, protection, and even a wife. Beckert would say this of the situation, quote, I can trap in their streams unmolested and derive more profit under their protection than if among my own men, end quote. It certainly helped that the Crow were fascinated by Beckworth. He was an accomplished mountain man, but he was also a natural showman, which was appreciated by the Crow. Beckworth would go on to spend nearly a decade living with the Crow. To demonstrate how valuable this was to his employers, his salary would rise to as high as $800 a year. 
Now, while the actual facts about Beckworth's time with the Crow are murky, we do know that warfare was a large part of their world, and Beckworth would ride and fight with the Crow and become a respected member of the tribe. He said that he wed the daughter of a Crow chief, and he himself would rise to the rank of chief in the tribe and earn the name of Bloody Arm. Now, just to be clear, being a chief is not running everything. It means that he was respected for his abilities as a warrior, and he was likely consulted on important decisions, that sort of thing. For Beckworth, he was equally comfortable in a gunfight as he was with stealing horses. One story, confirmed by others, had Beckworth rally and lead the Crow in an assault against a group of Blackfeet entrenched in a well-defended camp amid a rock formation. And Beckworth has many tales of stealing horses while with the Crow. By the way, stealing horses from one's enemy was a sign of accomplishment, and Beckworth proved to be really good at it. Charles Larpentour, a fur trader and trapper for 40 years in the region, called Beckworth a, quote, great brave warrior among the Crow, end quote. Like his time as a mountain man, Beckworth thrived in these years with the Crow. He loved the adventure and the freedom the life offered, and he enjoyed the respect he had within the tribe. Also, he didn't have to be concerned about racial slights, and he liked the liberal sexual practices of the Crow. Beckworth also loved the elaborate pageantry associated with his position. He took to wearing beaded leggings and robes made by the Crow, which he would do often for the rest of his life. However, things would change in the mid-1830s. First, settlers were pushing further and further west, pressuring the Crow and all the Indian tribes of the Plains and the Rockies. Second, smallpox had arrived in the Rocky Mountains and began to make its way through the various tribes. This will make the native peoples weaker, but also more desperate, in the face of so many external and internal pressures. Third, beaver numbers were dropping as they were over-trapped. The trappers were being forced to go further and further into the wild to find them, making it more dangerous and less economical. Fourth, and most importantly, fashion changes were sweeping across Europe. Felt beaver hats, a staple for 300 years, were falling out of favor. Silk was now the material of choice, making beaver prices drop. This meant trapping just wasn't as lucrative as it once had been. Many of the smaller independent fur companies went out of business or were swallowed by larger organizations. And this would lead to Beckworth's time amongst the Crow coming to an end. By 1837, the Crow were becoming increasingly aggressive towards the encroaching white settlers, traders, and soldiers. And Beckworth, who had been an important figure in keeping the Crow on the side of the Americans, saw his influence wane. Fights and raids and deaths were more commonplace, and Beckworth just wasn't as effective as an agent as previous years. This meant that Beckworth's employer, he had moved over to the American Fur Company years earlier, did not renew his contract. And thus, after nearly a decade of living with the Crow, Jim Beckworth, trapper and mountain man, and chief of the Crow, would head back to St. Louis. In St. Louis, life would prove to be a bit of a struggle for Jim Beckworth. Adapting back to this world, after so many years living in the mountains, was a difficult adjustment. As a result, he turned to drinking, which would lead to fighting. It was not a good situation. And this is when Beckworth would sign up to fight Indians in Florida. Let's do a little background here. From 1816 to 1819, the United States had fought a war against the Seminole Indians in Florida. The result was the Seminoles being pushed out of northern Florida and into the swampy interior. However, the Indian Removal Act of 1830 meant the Seminoles had to relocate to the Indian Territory, which is present-day Oklahoma. They refused, and the Second Seminole War was underway. The war, however, turned into a deadly, costly slog. The Seminoles used guerrilla warfare tactics to frustrate the United States military. To combat the natives, a contingent of Western men was organized. The idea was that there was no one better to fight Indians than mountain men and Indian fighters. The unit was organized in St. Louis, with Beckworth signing on for $8 a month. 
Beckworth's time in Florida would prove to be short, from late 1837 until early the following year. He said he was a messenger and a soldier, but records indicate he was a civilian wagon master. Beckworth would find his time in Florida disappointing. Life was dull and too regimented, and he disliked the swampy Florida landscape. And of the Seminoles, he said they, quote, had no horses worth stealing, end quote. Anyhow, by the summer of 1838, Beckworth would find himself back in St. Louis, where he decided to go into the trading business. For a couple of years, Beckworth would work as an independent trader operating out of Fort Vasquez, near present-day Platteville, Colorado, on the South Platte River. From here, he dealt mostly with the Cheyenne. Beckworth, who had seen how alcohol devastated some native tribes, was open to selling spirits to the natives, saying, quote, If I had refused to sell to the Indians, plenty more traders would have furnished it to them. End quote. It's a more cynical Jim Beckworth than the man from a decade earlier. No matter Beckworth, per his usual routine, would venture south in a series of trading expeditions, eventually reaching Taos in northern New Mexico. There he would start a general store. Also, he would court and marry Louisa Sandoval. The couple would, in October 1842, headed north to the Arkansas River, where Beckworth built a trading post at a spot where some frontiersmen often congregated. Soon more and more people settled in, and Pueblo, Colorado was born. The settlement was soon notorious for its lawlessness. Historian David Lavender said it was, quote, the collecting spot for the scum of the mountains, end quote. No matter, it would make Beckworth one of the acknowledged founders of Pueblo, Colorado. Now, in typical Jim Beckworth fashion, he would not be long for Pueblo or his wife Louisa and their infant daughter. He would skedaddle and soon find himself on the move west, following the old Spanish trail to California. California was a great place for Beckworth. There was a growing American population, and many of the locals were dissatisfied with Mexican rule, and there was talk of making California an independent nation. This would allow Beckworth to be a part of, or at least witness, many historic events that unfolded at this time. This included the Battle of Providentia, north of Los Angeles. Beckworth said that he fought with the rebellious Californians against the Mexican government. When war with Mexico began in 1846, Beckworth said that he acted as a guide for American Army officer John Fremont. When Beckworth departed California, he engineered the theft of 1,800 horses from Mexican authorities and drove them to Colorado. He would take the profits of his horse raid and buy a saloon in a hotel in Santa Fe. The hotel was said to have the highest standards, and Beckworth was always around to gamble, drink, and tell his stories. One young man, Louis Girard, said Beckworth was a large, good-humored man with an infectious spirit and an engaging conversationalist. I want to point out that by this time in his life, Beckworth, who was in his late 40s, had perfected his persona as the dignified yet rugged mountain man. His long hair was braided, and he wore gold chains and earrings, as well as Indian robes and leggings. Meeting him would have been a memorable experience. Anyhow, life in the hotel and saloon business was going to be over very soon, and Beckworth would be on the move again. He would spend some time running dispatches for the U.S. Army before guiding a caravan to California in 1848. And here he was just in time for the famed California Gold Rush, which kicked off with the discovery of gold at Sutter's Mill earlier that year. In California, he would bounce around the central part of the state to do whatever job or lifestyle caught his eye. He carried messages for the U.S. Army, becoming acquainted with Lieutenant William Tecumseh Sherman, later one of the Union's finest generals. Sherman liked Beckworth, and while acknowledging the man's tendency to stretch the truth, he called Beckworth, quote, one of the best chroniclers of events on the plains that I have ever encountered, end quote. Beckworth would also do some prospecting and some gambling before making a killing selling goods at a huge markup to the miners who were pouring into the region. But as always, Beckworth would become bored and would sell his business for a reported $6,000. 
One of the fascinating things about Beckworth is that as he got older, there were more and more people who had encounters with the man. And the grandiose stories Beckworth liked to tell about himself were often topped by the stories told by those he ran into. One such story was when he made a small fortune playing cards. He would go on a spending and drinking spree for days, buying whiskey for anyone who wanted it. John Letts, who operated a store in a mining community called Mormon Bar, when talking about the many colorful characters of the era, would say, quote, none was as unforgettable as Beckworth, end quote. Others would tell tales of how Beckworth would ride into town on a stolen horse without a dime to his name. He would literally tell stories for a meal. A few months later, he would show up again, this time with thousands of dollars in his pockets. Much of it he would give to friends and the poor. Now, we have chronicled the adventures of Jim Beckworth for quite a while, but it's not as if he has done any exploring or trapping for a long time. But that is going to change, and Beckworth is going to make a discovery that will, literally, put his name on the map. Now, it is not going to be an earth-shattering discovery, but it's still a discovery all the same. The year is 1850. Beckworth found himself operating out of a place called the American Valley, today Quincy, California, roughly 100 miles northeast of Sacramento in the Sierra Mountains. Well, at this time, people were flocking to California, and there were many routes a person could take. But they all held dangers, especially as the settlers and would-be prospectors tried to cross the Sierra Mountains, which is roughly the border between Nevada and California. In the region Beckworth was living, the Carson and Truckee trail routes were the main options for travelers coming from the east. But these routes were higher altitude, seven to 8,000 feet, and very dangerous, and at times impassable. In fact, in 1846, the famed Donner Party would get snowed in while trying to cross these mountains. Trapped in a 7,000-foot-high mountain pass for the winter, nearly half of the 87 members would die, some resorting to cannibalism to survive. So with that in mind, let's go back to Beckworth. He would be acting as a guide for some gold prospectors in the Sierra Mountains. It was about 25 miles northwest of Reno, Nevada, that he found an old Indian trail leading through the mountains. It did not take long for Beckworth to realize what he had found. The pass, which is located in California, not far from the Nevada border, was far lower in altitude than any of the neighboring routes through the Sierras. In fact, the elevation of what we now call the Beckworth Pass is 5,211 feet, or 1,591 meters. It is the lowest mountain pass in the Sierra Nevada mountain range. Now, finding the pass was important, and Beckworth knew it. He would take his discovery back to the community of Marysville in California. He proposed that he blaze a trail from Reno, Nevada, over the Sierra Mountains and into California. A deal was struck, and Beckworth would get $500 for his services. Beckworth would work to clear a trail wide enough for a wagon to travel on. It would be ready the following year, and in the summer of 1851, the first wagon train would be led over the mountains by Beckworth. Inna Coolbrith was 11 years old when her family traveled through the pass, with Beckworth leading the way. Coolbrith, who would go on to become California's first poet laureate, would recount the experience many years later, saying, quote, Ours was the first of the covered wagon trains to break the trail through Beckworth Pass into California. We were guided by the famous scout, Jim Beckworth, who was an historic figure, and to my mind, one of the most beautiful creatures that ever lived. He was rather dark and wore his hair in two long braids, twisted with colored cord, that gave him a picturesque appearance. He wore a leather coat and moccasins and rode a horse without a saddle. She would then add, when Jim Beckworth said that he would like to have my mother's little girls ride into California on his horse in front of him, I was the happiest little girl in the world. End quote. Beckworth's Pass, by the way, was only a short part of the newly opened road, which was over 120 miles long. The new road saved travelers anywhere from 50 to 150 miles, a couple of thousand feet of elevation gain, 
as well as several steep grades and dangerous passes, including the aforementioned Donner Pass. By the way, Beckworth never got the $500 he was owed by the community of Marysville, as a fire destroyed much of the town that year, and there was no money to pay him. Still, Beckworth had done something pretty major. In California, on the other side of the pass that bears his name, he set up a ranch in a valley with a trading post and hotel to meet the wagons coming over the mountains. The new road would soon become one of the most traveled into California. Beckworth would often lead people over his pass, usually for a fee. However, there were many stories of his generosity. Many of these people were poor, and when they arrived, he fed them and gave them shelter for nothing. All of them, no doubt, experienced the hospitality of Beckworth, who never tired of regaling his guests with tales of his life in the mountains or with the native Indians. Now, in the winter of 1854, Beckworth would have an encounter that would change his life, and that was when Thomas D. Bonner, a traveling justice of the peace, came to Beckworth's ranch. Bonner thought that the life of Jim Beckworth would make a great book. Wild West stories were big sellers back east, and Beckworth's grandiose tales would be right in the wheelhouse of the public's taste. Now, Bonner was a disreputable guy. He was a heavy drinker who worked with the Temperance Union, red flags right there. As a judge, he was known to favor the person most likely to pay the court fees that Bonner charged. He was, to be honest, a con man. No matter, he and Beckworth would strike a deal. Bonner would write down Beckworth's story and bring it back east to publish. They would split the profits. The two men would spend months sitting and drinking as Bonner transcribed the tall tales provided by Beckworth. The result would be The Life and Adventures of James P. Beckworth, Mountaineer, Scout, Pioneer, and Chief of the Crow Nation, which was published in 1856. The book would make Beckworth famous, although his outrageous story was mocked and ridiculed by many, especially as obvious errors were discovered. No matter, it contributed to Beckworth's image. However, it did not profit him as Bonner, the crook that he was, never gave any of the money he earned to Beckworth. Bonner, by the way, would pretty much disappear after that. The last heard from him was in 1861, when he was arrested for stealing a cask of rum. After that, crickets, which is probably for the best. As for James Beckworth, he would eventually move on from his ranch in 1856, heading for St. Louis, then Kansas City, and eventually Denver. Wherever he went, the press and the locals came out to see the famed frontiersman. He played up the part of the mountain man and Indian chief, and never passed on the chance to tell stories. In Denver, Beckworth would settle down and open a store. Also, he would get married again, this time to Elizabeth Letbetter. A lot had changed in these parts since Jim Beckworth had left 20-plus years earlier. Mining was a booming business in Colorado, and settlers were pouring in. Caught in the middle of it all were the native peoples. Beckworth was sympathetic to the plight of the natives, and as an Indian agent, he became a trusted mediator and advocate for them, especially for the Cheyenne. The next few years saw Beckworth described as a trusted and wise businessman. However, there were bouts of drinking and gambling and fighting. One fight would turn ugly, and Beckworth and another man made a move for a shotgun. Beckworth got to the gun first, and the other man was shot dead. Beckworth was charged with manslaughter, but acquitted as the other guy had started the fight. Now, as Beckworth approached and passed at the age of 60, he slowed down due to a fall from a horse. Plus, years of hard living were finally catching up to him, and he found himself bent over at times and suffering from rheumatism. Also, his wife Elizabeth left him in 1864. The couple had two children, although one died in infancy. And that will take us up to the last major event of Beckworth's life, and it will not be a good one. In 1864, tensions between white settlers and the native Indians were at a peak. In late November, a thousand or so Arapaho and Cheyenne had set up camp at Sand Creek, a tributary of the Arkansas River in southeastern Colorado. 
They had come to the location at the suggestion of the U.S. military, who had arrived two months earlier and set up a peace. The Indians even raised an American flag at the camp to signal their peaceful intentions. However, there was an element that wanted nothing to do with a peace with the Indians. This included Colonel John Shivington, the commander of a volunteer military force, the 3rd Colorado Cavalry. Beckworth had been brought in as a guide for the Army, but the circumstances are murky. Beckworth says he was forced to join up or be killed, while other sources say he freely joined. No matter, Beckworth was not happy about what happened next. On November 29th, Shivington's army, consisting of about six to 700 riders, would attack the Indian camp at Sand Creek. The camp was not set up for defense, and many of the warriors were away hunting buffalo. The attack would come at night. At first, the Indians thought that the approaching horses were a buffalo herd, but when the shooting started, there was no question it was an attack. The result was ugly. The Americans had about 25 men killed in the fighting, while Shivington claimed his men killed 600 Indians, although that number is probably closer to 200. Most of the dead were women and children. The brutality of it was so appalling, a congressional hearing was held in Denver to investigate the matter. There were 31 witnesses, 17 of whom spoke against the conduct of Shivington and his men. Famed mountain man Kit Carson was amongst those condemning the attack, calling Shivington and his army, quote, cowards and dogs, end quote. Beckworth would be one of the 31 witnesses, and he also condemned what had happened. He had said that he had pleaded with Shivington not to start a war, but was ignored. He would describe the events and say, quote, two-thirds of the Indians killed at Sand Creek had been women and children, end quote. The findings of the investigation were harsh, especially considering the times. The following is from the panel's report, quote, the truth is that he, meaning Shivington, surprised and murdered in cold blood the unsuspecting men, women, and children on Sand Creek, who had every reason to believe they were under the protection of the United States authorities, and then returned to Denver and boasted of the brave deed he and the men under his command had performed. Shivington resigned from the military so he couldn't be punished by the government, although due to the outcry from the massacre, his political career was dead. By the way, Shivington would later seduce and marry his daughter-in-law, which just makes your skin crawl and confirms what kind of a guy he really was. Also, he never had any regrets about the butchery at Sand Creek, saying it was a good operation. Anyhow, the Sand Creek Massacre would spark an all-out war in Colorado, which was a precursor to the many wars that were about to be fought in the American West. For Jim Beckworth, the massacre was a terrible moment. From everything we know, he never would have wanted something like that to happen. He had proven, repeatedly, to be a friend of the Cheyenne. However, his services with the 3rd Colorado Cavalry would mark him in the eyes of many. The Cheyenne refused to work with him again, pointing to his presence with the Americans that day. No matter, even as he approached 65 years of age, he would find himself on the move again. He would work as a scout and a messenger for their army for a bit, and then go with his old friend Jim Bridger to the Bighorn region in Montana. And then, in October of 1866, Beckworth would suffer from severe headaches and nosebleeds while guiding some men to a crow camp. The crow celebrated his return, and they even asked him to come and live with them again but he said he was too old and tired to do such a thing. A short time later, Beckworth would die, the exact circumstances not known, but it is believed to have been from natural causes, perhaps severe hypertension. According to Crow funeral tradition, Beckworth's body was placed on an elevated platform. He was then buried at the Crow Indian Settlement Burial Ground in Laramie, Wyoming. James Beckworth, slave, explorer, trapper, trader, scout, warrior, Indian chief, scoundrel, and gaudy liar, and so much more, was dead. He was probably 66 years old. So that is the life of James Beckworth. I hope you've enjoyed it. 
Now, before we go into a discussion about the legacy of Beckworth, I want to do a short blurb about his family. The man had several wives in his life, and at least four children, one of whom died in infancy. He had a son, George, who reportedly died after being kicked in the head by a mule in 1875. Regarding his other children, I really couldn't find anything reliable. Now, regarding the legacy of Jim Beckworth, to be honest, I find it really fascinating. At the time of his death, he was dismissed by most people, the gaudy liar moniker hanging over him. However, time has given us an appreciation and a better understanding of Beckworth. So let's talk about some of the accomplishments and highlights of the guy's life. First, there are tangible discoveries, and that's really Beckworth Pass and his creation of the Beckworth Trail. The trail would be heavily used for about 10-15 years before the coming of the Transcontinental Railroad made it obsolete. Still, the trail was a lifesaver for thousands on that final push over the mountains into California. The Pass and Beckworth Trail can still be traveled today. The second thing is the more general exploration conducted by Beckworth and his contemporaries throughout the American West. Because of the way these men operated, we can't say, this guy found this and that guy found that. Instead, it's a general accumulation of exploration and travel and discovery over the course of decades in the mountains of the West by these men. Beckworth himself went through Wyoming, Colorado, Montana, Nebraska, Kansas, New Mexico, Nevada, Utah, and California, and that's just in the West. He and other mountain men would be the first non-natives to see so many places in the Rockies and beyond. It is quite an achievement made mostly by unknown individuals. Another thing I want to mention is Beckworth's role in the founding of Pueblo, Colorado. That's pretty cool. Today you can go there and see a memorial honoring Beckworth as one of the seven founders of the city, which is also pretty cool. And we can't forget that Beckworth set up a ranch on the other side of the pass he discovered. That site is now Beckworth, California, a small town of a few hundred people. That makes two communities that Beckworth helped found. So beyond the exploration and discovery and the founding of places, the growing appreciation of Beckworth has resulted in further recognition of the guy. In addition to the Beckworth Pass and Road, there is a mountain that bears his name not far from his famous trail. You can also find numerous parks and streets and so forth named after him. There was even a postage stamp with Beckworth's likeness on it put out in 1994. In popular culture, there have been a couple of novels about Beckworth, and just this year there was a Netflix film called The Harder They Fall, which featured Beckworth as a principal character. I want to point out that the movie gets virtually nothing right about Beckworth. I mean, nothing. It's a very violent comic book style film, but if you're looking to learn something about Beckworth, that's not going to happen. But all that stuff aside, the last thing I want to talk about is the autobiography of Beckworth, because it is really what made people remember the man. The life and adventures of James P. Beckworth, mountaineer, scout, pioneer, and chief of the Crow Nation, while not a masterpiece or even very reliable, would be historic. It would offer a rare look into the life of these pioneering mountain men, and the documentation of Beckworth's time with the Crow is fascinating. And it is, as far as I can tell, the only book by an African-American from the era. So that is it, the life of American explorer and mountain man, James P. Beckworth. I hope you've enjoyed this story. Beckworth was really a colorful man, and his story was equally colorful. I can't stress how extraordinary it is that this guy went from the son of a slave to one of the most celebrated mountain men of the American West. I look forward to covering other stories from this era in the future. It's not an area we've done much of on the show, so this was fun, even if the Beckworth myth made putting together the script for the show a bit of a chore. So that is it for Jim Beckworth. I want to finish up by saying thanks to all the supporters of the show. I appreciate it. Special hugs and kisses to the show's financial patrons, 
This includes Rudy, Roger, Ralph, Philip C., John Paul, Gregory, Eileen, Amon, David K., Craig, Collier, David P., Adam, and Donnell. Many, many thanks to you and everyone else who helps out. So that is it for today. Thanks again for listening. Please enjoy your holidays, and I will see you next time.